Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 21. As we, uh, as we turn there, why don't you uh, pray with me uh, before we read God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we come to hear from you, our God. Uh, we come to hear your voice speaking to us in the scriptures. We know, Father, that we need your spirit if we are to understand these things. Uh, spiritual things are spiritually discerned, that is, Uh, discerned by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us, that we would be able to understand the scriptures, that the scriptures would grip our hearts, uh, that uh, your word would take deep root in us, and that we would, um, that we would draw close to you as we, as we hear and understand and believe what the scriptures say. We pray that you will be glorified in that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, We'll be reading verses 1 through 21. When the Pharisees and Sadducees came in to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the son of man, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, we are often slow to accept the authority of other people. In our culture, authority is something to be resented or thrown off. When we think of authority, we think of its abuses more often than anything. 
We like running our own lives. We like running our own lives our own way. And authority sometimes scares us a little bit. Authority, we think, is, is there just to, to take away our fun. Well, Jesus came speaking and teaching with authority. He demonstrates that authority by healing the sick and casting out demons. He showed he had authority over our physical bodies, over the forces of nature, over the super, supernatural forces of evil in the world. Maybe most of, important of all, uh, Jesus had authority on earth to forgive sins. And he proved that by removing sin's effects from the world. Now, for some, this was welcome. Uh, the crowds flocked to Jesus. They wanted him to use his authority to bring healing to their bodies and to their souls. Others were not so ready to accept Jesus' authority. Maybe not surprisingly, uh, this was those who had authority. Uh, to them, Jesus was a threat. Uh, to those who had nothing to lose, Jesus was welcome. Uh, but to those who had authority and power, Jesus' authority was a threat to their own. It was a threat to their reputation, to their comfort, to their sense of control. And in this sense, Jesus is really a threat to every one of us. I mean, we live in a day where personal autonomy, right, where, where a day of personal autonomy, where every man and woman is a rule unto themselves, right? We bow to no person. We decide our own destinies, and Jesus as king is a threat to this line of thinking. He challenges our, our basic sense of the primacy of self. And we're going to look at Matthew 16 this morning, verses 1 through 21. And it, within that, I should say there's a section, Matthew 16, 13 through 20, which is really a key section of Matthew's gospel. And, and this week, I'm just going to say a very little bit about those verses. I'm going to say more about them next week, right? So if you have questions about those verses, you can hold on to them Make sure you come back next week, and uh, we, can, we can talk about it then. But we're going to look at this section, this whole section, but we're going to look at 13 through 20 this week in its context. We're going to look at it uh, in the context leading up to it, and then next week we're going to look at th those verses again uh, with what follows. This week we're going to see, we're going to look at the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who uh, refuse to acknowledge Jesus' authority. Right? They're afraid of what it might cost them. We're going to see the Father reveal Jesus' authority to Peter. And then we're going to see Jesus uh, deputize, as it were, his disciples with the gospel, the gospel which humbles us before Jesus' authority. And so our, our outline this morning, you can see it in your bulletin, is uh, our stubborn refusal, our deep need, and our only hope. First, our stubborn refusal. Uh, beginning, with Matthew, beginning in early Matthew 16, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus to test him. And they ask him a question. They want him to show them a sign. Now, this is not the first time this has happened in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not even the second time this has happened in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, you may remember back in Matthew 12, the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him for a sign. And yet that wasn't the first time either. You may remember way back to Matthew chapter 4, where Satan tempts Jesus by saying, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You see, Satan is the first one to demand a sign from Jesus. Satan is the first one to ask for proof of his sonship. Now, there are, is actually an even greater connection between Matthew 4 and this passage here. In both places, someone is asking for Jesus to prove himself, but also in both places that someone is trying to test Jesus. That's the word that's used in both places. In Matthew 4, that's translated as tempt, but it's the same word echoed here in the word test. 
The religious leaders are really just continuing the work of Satan. They're seeking to test Jesus, to demand signs, proof that he really is who he says he is. One of the problems with this attitude is it's treating God like a puzzle and not a person. Uh, we treat God like this all the time, right? If we, when we say things like, God, if you're real, right, do this, jump through these hoops. Or, or God, if, if you're really there, I've got to see this kind of evidence or this kind of proof. You see, we think that we have authority to tell God what is sufficient evidence of his existence. Now, the, the, the problem with that is, one, if there is no God, then it's just meaningless, right? Because if there's no God, then it doesn't really matter what requirements we place on him. He's not there. But if there is a God, this is absurd. Because if there is a God, who are we to place requirements on him? God is not a, a show dog to jump through our hoops, but he's a king to be bowed before. God is not a puzzle to be solved, but a person to be adored. And notice how Jesus responds to these men. The first thing he does, actually, is compliment them. He compliments the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says they know how to interpret the weather, right? They don't have weather.com, but they, they could well enough interpret what was going to happen that day. They, they know how to interpret the weather, but they cannot interpret the signs of the times. See, the truth is Jesus has given lots of signs. I mean, Jesus' lineage as a son of Abraham shows he has a right to be king. Jesus' virgin birth as the Son of God shows his authority over all things. The voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism pointed to the Father's unique relationship with Jesus the Son. Jesus' miracles points to his dependence upon his Father. The, the demons who recognized him, you may remember, cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Even in just the last chapter, Jesus healed and fed 4,000 Gentiles, in fulfillment of God's promises to bless the nations through the Messiah. There have been innumerable signs. The fact that they ask for a sign shows that they don't know how to interpret them. The very fact that they ask actually points to their inability. But it's not that these men aren't smart. Right? They are the religious and political leaders of Jesus' day. I mean, they're the cream of the crop, right? These guys are the top 10%. It's not that they're not smart, it's not simply that they can't figure it out. It's that they won't. They, they don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. They're the religious and political leaders, right? They're the ones who have authority. If Jesus is who he says he is, then they lose everything, right? They lose their status, their authority, their position and power and esteem of the crowds. This is really what it comes down to. It's not simply that we don't know who Jesus is. It's not simply that we can't solve the puzzle but something is holding us back. We can't because we won't. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus yet, right? If you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Son of God, as the scriptures teach, the, the question is, what is stopping you from believing? Maybe it's a, a, a fear. Maybe it's a, a, a fear of being taken in somehow. Uh, maybe it's a, an over-reliance on self, right, that says, unless I and my autonomous mind can work out all the details, right, I'm not willing to believe it. Uh, maybe, uh, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you're afraid of what you might lose if you were to trust in Jesus and turn to him. Maybe you've set stipulations on God, saying, God, until you jump through these hoops, I won't believe what you've said. And yet, even as Christians, we, we sometimes are unwilling to believe what the scriptures say, 
Or sometimes uh, we don't want Jesus to be the Messiah, right? Because we're afraid of what we might have to give up. We love our sin. We don't want to let it go. Oftentimes we just want to be left alone. And so we too are slow to believe what the scriptures say. So the question is, what's holding you back, right? Why won't you interpret the signs? Why are you slow to believe what the scriptures teach? Well, Jesus goes on to say that there is one sign in particular that he will give, and that's the sign of Jonah. Now, this is what Jesus said back in chapter 12, so it must be important enough for Jesus to repeat himself. And back in 12, Jesus explained this a little bit as he said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is that the great sign is this, that Jesus is going to die, that he's going to be buried in a tomb and on the third day rise from the dead. The sign that Jesus offers is his own death and resurrection from the dead. If you want proof that Jesus is who he says he is, this is it, right? He died for our sins and rose again for our forgiveness and restoration to the Father. It may seem like kind of an odd sign, but it is the one that Jesus offers. We'll come back to that in a minute. But after Jesus' little skirmish with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he he goes on to warn his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the disciples, they don't get it, right? They're confused. They think Jesus is chastising them for not bringing enough bread. Jesus has to point out that he just fed a total of 9,000 people with 12 loaves of bread and a half dozen anchovies, right? They don't need to worry about not having enough food. Well, what is the leaven then of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, the disciples eventually get it. They realize that he's talking to them about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, what is the teaching then that Jesus is warning them about? Well, it's interesting. The Pharisees and the Sadducees actually had very different teaching. They were theologically and politically on opposite ends of the spectrum. And yet Jesus warns the disciples about the leaven, singular, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So then the question is, what do these two opposing groups hold in common? Well, from what we can see in Scripture, because they're only paired here and one other place in the Gospel of Matthew, the only thing that these two people have in common is, two groups have in common, is their stubborn refusal to believe in Jesus, despite the signs that he's already given. They have an unwillingness to acknowledge Jesus' authority. They're not willing to accept who he really is. It's interesting to compare the leaders of Israel here to the disciples, because neither group gets it, right? I mean, Jesus uses one of his favorite names for the disciples at this point, right? Oh, you of little faith. And, and he asks them, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? In other words, how have you still not gotten this? And see, that the difference is not that the disciples get it, but the religious leaders don't. The difference is that the religious and political leaders of Israel don't want to get it. The disciples want to. They're just slow. But Jesus is patient with them, right? He, you know, sometimes as parents, there are things your, your children don't get. And as long as it doesn't inconvenience you too much, right, you're able to smile about it. And uh, I've got to imagine somewhat of a smile on Jesus' face here as he talks with his disciples. I, I want to imagine it because I know how slow I am to get things. And I know that as Jesus was patient with those first 12 disciples, he will be patient with me as well. And so Jesus says to them, I I think with a bit of a smirk, 
oh, you of little faith. How, do you, how can you not realize I'm not talking about bread? Now, maybe you're where the disciples are. Maybe you, you want to understand, but you still don't get it. You keep coming to him, right? Keep coming to him like the disciples did. He, he is patient, right? Keep coming, keep sitting at his feet. Uh, keep asking him to explain things, and he will teach you. He is patient with us. Well, this brings us to, to our, our next point which is our deep need. You know, when the disciples get to Caesarea Philippi, they they cross uh, the lake here, they get to Caesarea Philippi, and at that point, they're as far from Jerusalem as they could get, they're as far from the Jewish religious and political leaders as they could get, which means they have time and space to talk without interruption, without antagonism from the leaders. And so Jesus asks his disciples who people say that the Son of Man is. The Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself, and the disciples have all kinds of answers, right? They say, some say Jesus is John the Baptist, which connects this story, by the way, back to the story of Herod in Matthew 14, because Herod, too, thought Jesus was John the Baptist. Others say that Jesus is Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. People have all kinds of speculations about who this Jesus is. It's interesting that that they don't say, the crowds say that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, apparently that th- this was not widely speculated about Jesus, probably because Jesus didn't fit the mold they thought of when they thought of Messiah. So Jesus turns the question on the disciples themselves. He says, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers with his usual boldness, only this time he's finally right. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter finally got it, right? He knows who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, right? The prophesied King of Israel, the Son of the living God. This is, it's really a high watermark in Matthew, right? It's the turning point even of the gospel. And what's interesting though, is what Jesus says next. Peter makes this great confession and Jesus in verse 17 says this. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter finally gets it, flesh, but, but Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You see, it wasn't that Peter had finally, in his own strength, figured these things out. It wasn't that Peter had been working on this puzzle for, for weeks and months and years, and finally he solved it. I know, I figured it out, Jesus. I know who you are. You're the Messiah. No, think back, think back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, Jesus prays and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. See, the the truth is that the truth about Jesus must be revealed to us. We can't figure it out by our own wisdom, by our own understanding. We cannot, in ourselves, based on our own reason, work out who Jesus is. So Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, why is that, you might ask, right? I mean, why is it that flesh and blood cannot reveal who Jesus is? Well, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul says that the the natural person, the person that's just flesh and blood, right? Uh, That is the person that's thinking on a merely human level, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
See, the emphasis for Paul there is, is the inability. They are not able. The inability to grasp spiritual things because of the condition of our hearts. See, merely human reasoning, that of flesh and blood, it, it, it begins with man and it will inevitably end with man as well. You know, people may be very, very smart, right? They may have all kinds of PhDs. But the Bible is teaching that when we start from a position of autonomy, when we begin with the idea that, that I have a right or I have the authority to decide what is and is not true for me, um, when, we, when we begin there, we can never from that platform get to the thought that God has authority to tell me what is true and is not true. But if there is a God, that is exactly the kind of authority that he has. So if we start with unbelief, we end with unbelief. And to put that differently, right, as human beings, we often put our ultimate trust in, in our own reason or our own experience or in the reason and experience of others. We don't often question whether these things are true. We just believe them, right? My senses tell me the truth. My mind tells me the truth. See, we all, in the end, have faith in someone, whether it's ourselves and our own mind or whether it's the leading experts, right? We put our faith in someone. And so our logic about God often runs like this. Uh, I believe my, my reason, my experience tell me the truth. My reason and experience don't perceive that there is a God. Therefore, I believe in myself and not in God. See, see we, want there to be a, we want there not to be a God, and we have these logical circles which confirm that, right? I believe that my own, uh, I am my own ultimate authority. Therefore, I don't believe that God is my ultimate authority. Now, there may be all kinds of ways of teasing that out and making it more and more complicated, but when you boil it down, many arguments come down to that. My, my thoughts, my reason, my experience is what tells me what is true, the end. We need God to break into that and bring light, to bring light to our blind eyes, to open our stopped ears, to give understanding to our dull minds. God must act. Uh, from our perspective, that, that means uh, we, a fundamental dependence upon God for understanding, and not reliance on self for understanding, right? Self-reliance keeps us in the same old circles, circles which avoid the true God. Really, as Christians and non-Christians, we need God to break through our stubbornness day by day so we can know what is true and bow our knee to the one who rules over all. This is why Jesus could with confidence say to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but because the logic of our fallen humanity never does. Our logic is set up to confirm that we are our own ruler. You might ask, what makes Peter different from the Pharisees and the Sadducees earlier in the chapter? Well, again, it's not that Peter is smarter. It's not that he worked harder at figuring it out. Ultimately, the difference is the revelation of the Father. Right? The Father revealed to Peter who the Son is. What makes a Christian different from a non-Christian? Right? Again, it's not that we're smarter. Right? Uh, in fact, Paul says that God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. No, the, the difference is that God has broken into our hearts with his love. That's the difference. Now, you might think this leaves us in kind of a hopeless state, right? Because, okay, you're saying, Luke, that if I don't believe in Jesus, it's, it's because of these two things, right? That I have this stubborn refusal to believe because I want to protect my own freedom. And then I have this pris prison of circular reasoning that leaves me trapped in my own logic. And, and you're saying that if I really want to come to know the truth, the Father must reveal it to me. Yeah, that, that is what I'm saying, but that doesn't leave us hopeless, which brings us to our last point, which is about our only hope. 
of verses 18 and 19 say this. Jesus, still speaking to Peter, says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, again, this uh, is a really controversial passage. There are lots of things that I could say about it that I'm not going to say this week. I'm just going to highlight one or two things. Uh, Next week, we'll talk about it a little bit more. But uh, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there are two main interpretations of this passage. One is that Peter is Peter himself, right, is the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Peter's name means rock, right? And the other is that Peter's confession is the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. It's interesting, though, Jesus here identifies Peter, doesn't he? He says, you are Peter. And he identifies Peter in light of his confession of verse 16, that Jesus is the Christ, So I I actually think that the best way to understand this saying is is that the rock Jesus is talking about is Peter in his confession. Uh, To put it differently, right, it's the the apostolic confession, the confession of the apostles. That's the foundation of the church. That's what Paul says, anyway, in Ephesians chapter 2. You may know this uh, verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 where Paul teaches that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the apostles in their profession of Jesus as the Messiah are the the bedrock, the foundation of the church. Without the apostles' confession of Jesus as the Christ, historically in God's plan, there would be no church, right? I mean, if no one ever taught that Jesus was the Christ, then no one would have ever believed that Jesus was the Christ, so the apostles', the apostles confession, right, is the, the foundation of the church. And in fact, it's the continuing foundation of the church because we have their confession written in Scripture, right? We have their authoritative testimony to Jesus in the New Testament. And what this means for us practically today is that the, the Bible, right, the testimony of the, apostle, the apostles, which makes up the New Testament, is, is the foundation of the church, is the ground that the church is built on. Now, this teaching, on the one hand, it's not only the ground of the church, but it's also the way we we enter the kingdom, right? When Jesus says he's going to give them the the keys of the kingdom, again, we'll discuss that more next week, but he says he's going to give them the keys of the kingdom. Ultimately, Jesus is speaking about the gospel, right? Which begins with the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He's talking about the same things. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. This is what brings people into the kingdom, Jesus is saying to the apostles, I'm going to give you authority to open wide the door into the kingdom by proclaiming me as the Christ, and in this way I will build my church. Okay, it sounds good, but uh, if that's the case, the next verse is extremely odd. If Jesus is saying that, that the testimony that Jesus is the Christ is what opens the door into the kingdom, verse 20 seems strange. Because verse 20 says, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So if the testimony that Jesus is the Christ is what opens the door to the kingdom, and Jesus has just said he's going to give this key to the disciples, why does he immediately take it away? I mean, why does he immediately charge them, tell no one that I am the Christ? 
Well, the answer is really found in in the next verse, right? Verse 21. Verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, by the Father's revelation, Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ. Peter knew, Peter had uh, discovered by God's uh, showing him that Jesus is the Messiah. But Peter didn't yet know what that meant. Uh, Peter had passed sort of Jesus 101, right? He knew Jesus is the Christ. All right, I get this. But Jesus is now moving on to the upper level classes, right? What does that mean that Jesus is the Messiah? It means that he's going to suffer and die for our sins. And until Peter understands that, he doesn't want Peter telling anyone that he's the Christ because Peter's going to be misleading people in what that means. Well, by our own reasoning, in our own strength, we, we don't get to the thought that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But for Jesus, the, the, the real evidence of that, right, the sign of Jonah and eventually the message of the apostles, is this, that Jesus died for our sin and rose again on the third day. And it's this message that God uses to break into our hard hearts. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. He says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Do you see what this means? I mean, let's say that you don't believe in Jesus, right? Let's say you're having trouble believing that he is who he said he is. And you've heard what I said about our stubborn unwillingness and you're ready just to to give up and move on. Well, God has provided a way for us to come to know him through the gospel. And so what can you do? Well, you can expose yourself to the gospel, right? You can read the writings of the apostles, the New Testament. You can begin, begin with the gospel, right? Maybe read the book of Galatians or the book of Romans and try to figure out, try to learn from God's revelation what the gospel is, who Jesus is. You can keep coming to church and you can ask me hard questions afterward that I can't answer, right? You can keep bugging your Christian friends to explain things to you. And God will use that. God will use that to draw you to himself. It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. But maybe you're just afraid, right? I mean, maybe you're afraid to give up your freedom to run your life your own way. Well, the gospel is not only what God uses to break into our stubborn hearts, it's also what proves that we have nothing to fear. I mean, Jesus is giving the apostles the the gospel, right? The good news that our king came to die for us, to be born under the law, to submit himself to the false powers of this age, ultimately to give up his life for sinners. And don't you see, I mean, you know, somebody once wrote, uh, somebody once wrote, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy, right? Now, now, oftentimes, people think that Christianity, think, people think that about Christianity in general. You know, Christianity is just this fear that somebody out there is having fun. Well, th- th- that's a false view of Puritanism. It's a false view of Christianity because Jesus is not some tyrannical ruler. He's, he's not wanting to make sure that nobody has any fun. That's not the kind of king that he is. What kind of king is he? He's a king that comes and dies for us. He he loves us. He died for us. If you're afraid of what commitment to Jesus might mean, open your eyes to see his commitment to you at the cross. Let his love melt your heart and take away your fears. That here's a king who gave up everything for you. And Paul says in Romans, if the father didn't spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
If you're a Christian, what this means is that there is hope for your most resistant friend or family member, right? God has provided a way through the gospel for sinful men and women to be reconciled to himself. Through God's love displayed in the gospel, God breaks through our stubbornness and fear. And God will use our loving, gracious, patient profession of the truth to do just that, to break through our hearts first and the hearts of those whom we love. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we need uh, your spirit to open our hearts, to soften our hearts, to help us to, to see you more and more in the scriptures, to, to believe in you, to put our faith in Jesus, that he bore our sin in the cross and that he rose again for our sins. Father, we pray that you would work in us to draw us closer to you and that you would use us as we, as we share Jesus with others, as we uh, proclaim that, that apostolic message, the message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came to bear sin and to rise again. We pray that you would use that message as we share it with others. Help us to do that with love and with grace and with patience. We pray that you would draw people to yourself to the glory of our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.